This is Complexified, where we dive deep into the places where religion and politics collide with real life. I'm your host, Amanda Henderson. Today on the show, evangelical pastor, political operative, and author Rob Shank. To many, Rob Shank is the father of the anti-choice movement. As a young pastor, he drew headlines for a stunt in which a dead fetus was thrust at President Bill Clinton. Later, as you'll hear, Rob had the ears and the hearts and the pens of conservative Supreme Court justices. Years later, I had the chance to visit him in his old office, overlooking the windows of the Supreme Court chambers. Today, Rob has done a complete about-face in his political views, an about-face he revealed in his memoir, Costly Grace. And as founder of the Bonhoeffer Institute, he's fighting the rise of Christian nationalism. Rob Shank, I am so grateful to have you on our podcast, Complexified. You are someone who has lived the complexity of religion and politics in your daily life, and it's central to your story. So the first thing that I want to dive into is the ways that we are seeing this rise in Christian nationalism today. If we've been watching the January 6th hearings or paying attention to the news at all, we know that one of the biggest threats that we face as a country and as a democracy is this rise in Christian nationalism. Can you speak to the ways that you see Christian nationalism as an immediate threat? Well, first, thank you, Amanda, for the invitation. I'm just as grateful to be in conversation with you, especially about such an enormously consequential subject. I actually see Christian nationalism as the greatest threat Hmm. to our democracy, and not just to our democracy, but to, to free countries and liberal democracies all over the world, I see Christian nationalism as distinctly different, and not just different, but opposite Hmm. of what you see in the model and person of Jesus, who was Hmm. motivated by love for the other, affirmation of the other, invitation uh, and embrace of the other. And Christian nationalism is the antithesis of that. Hmm. It's the rejection and contempt uh, and and even violence towards the other. Hmm. So I do see it as the greatest danger we're now facing uh, for for more than one reason. Mm -hmm. Can you take us back to your early story? You were raised Jewish. And in your high school years, converted to Christianity and really picked up the helm of this fundamentalist uh, Christianity and then became a leader in that tradition. Sure. Um, Well, it didn't start that way. You know, you 
you referenced my upbringing, mm-hmm. which was in a very liberal Jewish home, although, as they say, south of the border, it was muy complicado because um, my mother had been a convert to Judaism, mm. uh, born and baptized Catholic, raised Episcopalian, really had no uh, active faith when she met my father. Uh, the family requested very strongly that she convert to Judaism to marry him. She did. And they pledged to raise their children with Jewish identities. So four of us were raised that way. But my, my mom and dad were very open-minded people. They said, go out and, and shop religion hmm. and make your own decisions. And we each did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found the son of an evangelical Methodist minister hmm. who became a close friend. And uh, I was introduced to the message of Jesus in this little country church. I was 16 years old. And I had cut my teeth in activism, uh, protesting the Vietnam War. I was anti-war. I would have identified then as a pacifist. Mm -hmm. And here was this person of Jesus I saw as certainly against war and violence for peace. He loved the stranger, uh, the marginalized. He looked to me like a hero uh, Mm -hmm. in every sense, a moral hero. And I was very drawn to the message I made a public profession of faith, and two years later, when I was 18, I went to cast my first uh, vote, Mm -hmm. happened to be 1976 presidential year, Uh, and I voted for Jimmy Carter. Why? Because he seemed to exemplify all of the virtues that I saw in Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount love for the poor, for the marginalized, for the suffering, uh, advocate of peace, and so forth. So that was my first encounter with Christianity. And it was the gospel, the message that I embraced. But then as the years went on and I went to what we call Bible college, which was a preparation for professional Christian ministry and seminary in very theologically conservative settings, I was introduced to the National Association of Evangelicals, and this was during the rise of Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, uh, a new political brand of American evangelicalism. Yeah, and that's really important to name. I love the way that you really lay that out, that this was a new brand and a new way of expressing evangelical Christianity. And a lot of folks assumed that that's always been the case, but you you were right there at the beginning of this movement. Sure, I mean, 100 years before that, or maybe 150 before that, evangelicals, at least a good portion of them, uh, were abolitionists working against slavery. They would later work against child labor They would be some of the first to ordain women and give them leadership, full and equal leadership posts in the church. You could argue that for a little period of time, evangelicals looked quite progressive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they became terribly regressive. And by the time I was at the seat of the leadership table in American evangelicalism, we were not just regressive, we were politically co-opted. 
and strategically so. And it was largely at the hands of, and, and I'm going to say this with great affection for folks I know in the South, and some of whom were leaders in the civil rights movement, white and black. But uh, at some point, Southern evangelicalism gained the ascendancy in the United States. So you had figures like Jerry Falwell from Virginia and mm -hmm. favoring the South, who now kind of took over and muscled out those more progressive evangelicals, marginalized them. And Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party struck a deal with the National Association of Evangelicals and other evangelical groups, particularly the Falwell web. And mm -hmm. suddenly, you know, I was swept up in that. Ronald Reagan was the first president to address a sitting body of American evangelical leaders, and I was literally on the front row, literally mm -hmm. made sure yeah. I had a front row seat when he addressed the annual convention of the National Association of Evangelicals. I was there, and I felt the glow of presidential affirmation, and that would lead to a second conversion that I call my conversion to Ronald Reagan Republican religion, hmm. otherwise known as white American evangelicalism. Yeah, that's so important to name the way that felt, to be recognized by someone with power, and to feel the effects and the ripple of that power in your own self and perhaps ego. Can you speak a little bit to that feeling of being in that circle, being at that table on the front row with the most powerful decision makers in the world? Sure. You know, some may think that white privileged aggrievement uh, was invented by Donald Trump. It it wasn't. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it preceded him by decades. Mm -hmm. And even in the early 80s, I can remember rehearsing over and over again how American evangelicals were a persecuted and disfavored minority in America. And, and there was a kind of myth that we were somehow disadvantaged. Like, we didn't, you know... We didn't go to Ivy League schools. Our clergy were some of the least educated, sometimes non-educated people. Mm -hmm. And so the elite, you know, the Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Duke crowd looked down their noses at us. And publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post classified us as sort of the uneducated, ignorant masses. And so we had a feeling of aggrievement. We were aggrieved, and we wanted somehow to get back at elitist culture for persecuting us. And that was very present in those settings. So to have a president of the United States say, I need you, I'm for you, a whole political party, is behind you and we want you to be in leadership not to be marginalized but in fact to take center stage that was a real rush to use 
colloquial mm. language, you know. <laughs> it was relief. It was a feeling of empowerment. And up until that time, you know, we, we talked about servant leadership, that you led by serving others, by meeting their needs, by reaching out and loving them, even when that affection wasn't reciprocated. And that's pretty tough to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt a little weary of it by then. And here was a way to instantly claim our place in society, on the national stage, in terms of influence, and even power, Mm -hmm. because we knew what the bully pulpit of the presidency meant, executive powers. It probably meant that we could get a Congress someday that would reflect our principles and values. And that's the tack that I took, and it was the track that I set out on. And eventually, I would take my place at the table in Washington and visit with presidents, with leaders of Congress, and ultimately with uh, justices of the Supreme Court. Yeah. It proved to be right. I mean, I I predicted that. And in fact, it took 20 years, but it came to pass. Yeah. Can you speak to your role in the anti-abortion movement and the work to overturn Roe and just kind of lay the groundwork for how that came to be for you? Yeah, well... um, It started when I was recruited to participate in blockades of clinics where abortion services, among other reproductive health care, was offered. And I thought of it as very much in the tradition of, you know, the civil rights movement when there were, you know, lunch counter sit-ins. And, you know, we used that language and even sang those songs modified for our movement. Mm -hmm. And when I entered that arena, I saw, you know, what I then termed the unborn child as a victim of social prejudice and violence. And uh, they needed advocacy. So we were advocates. But very early on in that experience, another voice came into the movement, Rush Limbaugh, hmm, the hmm. now notorious, you mm-hmm. know, three hour per day afternoon arch conservative radio talk show host, who, as far as anybody could tell, had no Christian sensibilities whatsoever. Yeah. But he glommed on to our movement, saw it as a kind of hot poker in the eye of liberal elites, and championed us. And now we had another kind of public affirmation. It wasn't Ronald Reagan. It was Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, and a real broad reach. That can't be understated, the the reach of his voice during that time. Massive. In fact, mm-hmm. he would quickly rise to the most listened to radio talk show host in broadcast history and would move political mountains uh, with his influence. 
And we were a favorite of his. And so suddenly the movement began to transform. Even using his peculiar vernacular, he invented all kinds of neologisms and bumper sticker type slogans. And, and we started employing those just as a way hmm. of identifying with his massive public influence and political influence. As people may recall, he was the one that Donald Trump would drape with the, the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom mm -hmm. uh, during a, a State of the Union address shortly before Rush Limbaugh died in a very ostentatious, cynical move. But in any case, that's how big uh, he became over time. So that swept me into a fully politicized form of the pro-life, I more accurately now term it the anti-abortion, even anti-woman movement. Mm -hmm. And I watched that happen too. When I first joined the movement in the late 80s, early 90s, we had many women leaders. But with time, the men would start shoving women, sometimes literally, physically, aside push them out hmm. of the way, take center stage. Eventually, those women, those women leaders would disappear from, from the platforms and take a very secondary or tertiary role in the movement. And the men started showing up. I harbored some doubt about this, but it, it was unspoken at the time. But the guys would start showing up literally in lizard skin boots, wide buckle belts, mm -hmm. sometimes empty holsters on their belts because they didn't mm. want to be arrested for having a weapon or with a weapon. And we were all being arrested for blockading the clinics and they didn't want to complicate matters with a firearm. But they would wear the empty holster to prove I could be wearing a firearm. I oh, could be packing deadly firepower. And literally, Amanda, I'm not kidding you, 10-gallon cowboy hats started showing up everywhere. And suddenly this movement that had been a mix, a gender mix of leadership, yeah. became exclusively male and a kind of cartoonish, caricaturized male movement. And that would set the ethos, the tone of it, for the next 20-plus uh, years. Yeah. One of the things I think we aren't fully aware of at this point is the ways that these Christian nationalist ideas impact so many different areas of our life. And most recently, the Dobbs decision in the Supreme Court, which undoes 50 years of precedent with Roe versus Wade, and the, the effort to uh, overturn Roe is a part of the pull toward Christian nationalist ideology in the United States today. How did you, in that time, see your Christian identity connected to your identity as an American? Yeah, that gets to the heart of the thing, because over about a 10-year period, I came to embrace and to promote, literally preach and promulgate this idea 
that our opposition to abortion was grounded in the claims made in the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we would say, I would say it, all of our leadership would say it over and over again, write about it, and so forth. We would say, the first right is the right to life. Hmm. You can't enjoy liberty or pursue happiness unless your life is first defended. So therefore, we must defend life from the moment of conception until natural death. Now, that was a distinctly religious notion mm-hmm. yeah. and a distinctly yeah. Christian one and, and mm-hmm. even a more contemporary Christian one. It, it, yes. It's a yeah, new exactly. idea. It's not an ancient mm-hmm. idea. No. It's a new idea. So I, I failed to appreciate that, how narrow that interpretation of life is. Can you say a little bit more about that? How is that a new idea? Well, first of all, it has its origins in Catholic moral teaching, not even in Protestant and certainly not in evangelical moral teaching. Right up to 1973, it it shocks people to learn that the Southern Baptist Convention and many other evangelical bodies in the United States actually supported Roe v. Wade in 1973. Mm -hmm. It was Catholic moral teaching that was, you know, opposed to Roe v. Wade. There are various dates for that. Um, You know, some will go back to the early centuries of the Christian church, others much later in time, uh, medieval or even 16th century, 17th century, You know, it depends on which scholar you're talking to. But in any case, it does not date to biblical times. In terms of the Bible, the oldest contemplations, instruction, resolutions on these questions are found in Judaism, not in Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I've argued Jesus was Jewish. The early disciples were all Jewish. The message of Jesus was contained within the Jewish community. It was proclaimed in synagogues, not in churches. They hadn't Uh been invented yet. (laughs) Uh, So this was a Jewish ethos. And while you find Jesus commenting on many things, he never comments on abortion, even though abortion was widely practiced in that period, the New Testament period. And in fact, there's been hard evidence of that. Uh, Archaeologists have exhumed hard evidence of uh, abortion practices in in that world, and yet Jesus never comments on it. Why? I'm convinced it's because he held to a Jewish belief about this, which is that the unborn fetus, the gestating human, is of a different order than the born and independent humans. I'm not an expert on it. I will just say that in Jewish moral instruction, first of all, the woman is always preeminent, Mm -hmm. is in first position, the fetus in second position. And all of this was obliterated by modern 
arch-conservative Catholic and later evangelical Protestant moral teaching. It does not have its roots in Scripture or in Christian history. It has its roots in modern social and political phenomena. And Mm -hmm. that's really important for us to understand that. Yeah. And when does this get tied to American identity and politics and Christianity? That first happened in the early 70s, but it wouldn't really take hold until the mid-80s when groups like the Moral Majority, National Right to Life, and others struck a deal with the Republican Party. And that deal would progress as it went along. You know, in the first instance, it had mostly to do with presidential politics. Then it would become congressional politics. I was there in the middle to late 90s at the tables with Republican Party operatives when they offered us a deal. Hmm. And they said, look, we're with you on abortion. We know you want the reversal of Roe v. Wade. We're going to give you that. We're going to deliver that for you. But in exchange, and some of them would be quite crude. I can see this. I was seated at an oak table inside the U.S. Capitol. There were a number of national evangelical leaders at the table. I was there. Uh, I would now put this at about 1995 by, by now. It was after the, what was called the Republican Revolution of the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And a party operative said, look, in exchange, we're going to take down Roe. We're going to make abortion illegal in this country. But you're going to have to give us your full support. You understand that? Wow. Everything we bring to the table, you will support because there's nowhere else for you to go. You understand that? And there were literal handshakes across the table. We understand. How did you feel in that moment? Do you remember having any doubts or hesitations or were you all in? I had momentary reserve. I was a tiny bit conflicted, not enough to count, because it became the perfect expression of the ends justify the means. Hmm. We have to get rid of this evil called abortion. Whatever it takes, that's what we will deliver. And then over time, you become inured to, to those flashes of conscience. And I regret that deeply, and I'll carry that regret to my grave, because I wish I would have listened to the voice inside of me, and I didn't. And I'll tell you, Amanda, you know, we all know this to a certain degree, but boy, I'll tell you, when you are given unfettered access Hmm. to a White House, to congressional leadership, speakers of the House, Senate leaders, and eventually to the justices of the Supreme Court, it's very seductive. Hmm. There's a kind of washing over of your conscience that that happens. You have to be extremely careful, and I was not. Frankly, I think the black church gives us the best example of how to maintain one's integrity, moral integrity, and still engage. 
the white church failed entirely on that point, and I was part of that failure. So how did it feel? It both felt like almost a superhero power mm. had come over me, and at the same time, I felt, in one sense, I lost my soul. It was a very hollow feeling that became worse over time. You've been talking a lot about the Supreme Court and and your role as a part of the fundamentalist Christian evangelical movement in the concerted effort to influence the courts and to influence the Supreme Court particularly to build enough power to overturn Roe. Can you speak to that history and your own realizations at this point around that work? Well, part of my work in Washington, my headquarters building was immediately across the street from the Supreme Court. I literally looked into the chambers of the justices from my office window. I could look into the conference room where they would eat lunch and then cast their votes on a decision, what's called the the Sancto Sanctorum, the, the Holy of Holies of the Supreme Court building. And part of my work in, the, in that time was to not only engage with the justices on a personal face-to-face level, but to introduce other influencers inside the religious right to their most personal spheres, social spheres, into conversations with them, if they could, to travel with the justices, invite the justices to their homes, to their places of business, and so forth, all in an effort to bolster their sensibilities. That This was exclusively with the conservative members of the court. We didn't even bother to, to try to engage with what we call the liberal side of the court in those days. We just went to the conservative justices. And we hatched the phrase, engage in the ministry of emboldenment, to embolden them so they would be stronger, more confident, even more strident in their verbiage, their language, the the positions they held, and eventually into their dissents and even into their majority opinions to actually render up really strong, unapologetic, uncompromising positions Hmm. and decisions as they did in a number of cases, including the most recent, Dobbs, uh, with the reversal of Roe, probably the strongest and most strident right-wing language we have ever heard, in an opinion maybe since the 19th century when, when there were decisions on slavery and Jim Crow and so forth. So, you know, the quick answer is that was part of my quiet work. We, it was invisible. We didn't... Uh, publicize it at all for obvious reason. And I'm sorry to say it was quite effective what we Mm -hmm. did in those years. Yeah, it sure was. We inserted what I called our stealth missionaries into the life of the court. And all these years later, I see that we achieved our objective. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to those early cracks 
in your worldview and your understanding of the work that you were doing and the way that you were moving in these religious and political spaces with such power, when did you start to question your own actions, the whole house of cards that um, had been built up around your work and ideas at that point? Well, it was anything but a sudden flash. To some degree, I harbored those doubts all along, but I, I came up with techniques to silence the voice of conscience deep inside of me, to compartmentalize, put it on a shelf, tell it, I'll, I'll visit you later sometime, not now, there's too much work to do. But they were with me, and in particular, one thing that my father had asked me once very early on, and he said, you all talk about making America a great country and promoting its best and making its very best. I have a hard time with that because when I was growing up as a Jewish person, I couldn't join certain clubs, I couldn't go to certain schools, I was beat up for being a Christ killer. When was it so good? And that haunted me. Hmm. And once in a while, I would visit that question and worry a little bit about it, but then I would move on. I remember sitting in a room with several members of uh, Republican members of Congress in Washington, and we were talking about some upcoming election. I can't remember which one. But I do recall saying, you know, in, in our news conferences, we always have a phalanx of white, middle-aged men. Shouldn't we bring some women and, and some people of color into this mix? And a congressman from Alabama said, that ain't going to help our numbers any. What's wow. the use of that? And when he said that, I winced and worried about it. But again, I kind of put it in a cabinet and said, someday we'll deal with that problem, but not now. And so life went on. And then came a time, and I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this. I'm not even sure you know this, Amanda. But I got very involved with former Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In his campaigns for Chief Justice which he and can won. you say a little bit about Roy Moore? Who who was he? For those who might not remember that name, Chief Justice Roy Moore was the Chief Justice of Alabama. I became aware of him when he was a circuit court judge in a little-known rural courthouse, where he had displayed a hand-carved set of the Ten Commandments on the wall. He was sued for that because there were those who came in and said. How can I be sure I'm going to be treated fairly by this judge when he puts his religious beliefs right on the wall and I don't share those religious beliefs? He won, he lost, he won, he lost. Eventually, when he ascended to chief justice of the state, uh, he came up with a plan of installing a massive stone monument of the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court building of Alabama. Wow. And I helped him with that. Literally, mm -hmm. I went down and, and literally rolled up my sleeves and helped install that giant monument in the Alabama courthouse. That would ignite a federal lawsuit. 
and he would eventually be removed from office by a court of the judiciary, which is extremely rare, even on a state level like that. While I was down there, I was arrested for supporting him in a protest, and I was thrown in the Montgomery County Jail, which at the time was full to overflowing. They had a lack of cells to put me in, so they put me in the psychiatric wing of of the jail. But it was a very, very sad, very tragic place to be. And oddly, it was the only wing of the jail that was co-ed, so there were men and women on this wing. And three doors from my cell was a woman, and this is always difficult for me to tell this story, but there was a woman in a cell who was obviously, you know, experiencing some form of mental illness. She was in great agony and distress, and she kept screaming all day long, where are my babies? I have three kids. Nobody knows where my baby, where are my babies? Where are my kids? Well, it was at first grating to hear that. And, and, and then it, it just started tearing at my heart, at my conscience, hearing this woman's pleas to which no one responded, not a soul. Mm. Nobody mm. came to her aid. Mm. And, and so I was sitting there tortured w- with the sound of this woman's screams. But what I realized in that moment was I had carried with me this imaginary bubble all of my career as a national pro-life anti-abortion leader. The movement I was a part of had this kind of dream state where we imagined that any woman who was in any form of distress over a pregnancy, all she needed to do was cry out for help and Christians would come from everywhere to assist her. We would bring everything from diapers to food vouchers to childcare promises, babysitting, to whatever she needed. Mm-hmm. We would come to her aid. Why would anyone ever want to have an abortion? All the support you need is right there, just for the taking. Call out and we will be there for you. No one was there for this woman. No one. No one came. No one cared. No one responded. And for the first time, I came face to face with the reality of a desperate mother who could not care for her children. Hmm. And she was right there in my conscience, in my hearing, in my presence, only a few yards from me, for a torturously long period of time. And And I tell you that because it awakened me to something that I I had never not engaged into that moment, which was the reality of her world. And quietly I, I thought, you know, all this time I have demanded that others leave their reality to live in my fantasy. And in that moment, I was 
being called out of my fantasy into her reality. And it was like an awakening. Hmm. But I would still go back to Washington after it was all over and put her on the same shelf where I had put a whole lot of others. And it would await another, I'm sorry to say, 10 years before I would take that off the shelf, that terrible cry of anguish. It's this encounter with the real life of another person that has the power to crack open our fantasies and our imagined worlds. And it's not immediate, as you just named it. It takes so much time. And I think that's one of the daunting things about this work and uh these efforts to counter Christian nationalism and these ideal ideologies and ideas that are so rooted in imagined worlds um, that we build for ourselves and that we place on others. It takes so long to break through those cracks. And it would take a decade until finally I reached the tipping point. And it was a whole combination of things too numerous to detail here. But the real breaking point for me came when I took a leave of absence from all of my now very political work in Washington, cloaked as ministry. But it was really far more political than it was even at that point religious, though Mm -hmm. religion played a very big role in it. I had to take a leave of absence at one point, and and my wife Cheryl was very much ahead of me in this transformation. And she took her own professional hiatus. I took mine. We went out west to Seattle, uh, where she completed a degree she had left off when she was pregnant with our uh, daughter. And then I decided to do my late-in-life doctoral work. And in that research, I looked at the problem of the evangelical church in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. Hmm. And I can recall this vividly. I was in the dusty, musty basement of my seminary library in Tacoma, Washington, reading about the declaration by the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany, when Paul Althaus, one of the most revered Bible teachers of that day, declared that Adolf Hitler was a gift and miracle from God sent to the German people to make Germany great again. Wow. And as I read that, I was reflecting on my first encounter with Donald Trump at the 80th birthday party of the renowned evangelical religious broadcaster Pat Robertson at his party where Donald Trump was, you know, this was before he was a declared candidate for president, but he was working the room filled with Mm -hmm. evangelical leaders. 
And he had already tried out his slogan, Make America Great Again, words to that effect. I don't think they had quite developed it yet, but it, it conveyed yeah. that. And long story short is, I thought, oh my God, we are replaying precisely what happened in Germany, the confluence of what they called blood and soil, racial and ethnic and uh, patriotic national identity with Christianity, and that, that somehow this indicated the superior race of humans, and I, it, it was like suddenly one of those scenes where all these little fragments of imagery mm. and words and experience start coming together. And I sat there and said, oh, my God. We are mm -hmm. perpetrating the same error that brought about one of the greatest human catastrophes. And that's why I say now that for me, Christian nationalism is the greatest threat that we face. Because once you put religion at the service of a racialized ethnocentric political juggernaut. You remove all of the checks on that because now that it's been sacralized, it's been made holy or divine, you don't dare question it. You can question politics, partisanship, ideology, but you don't question the mind of God. And when I started hearing my colleagues say that God has anointed Donald Trump and raised up the Republican Party for this time, mm -hmm. you now remove all accountability because for evangelicals, and I would say the same largely for arch-conservative Catholics, the Bible says clearly that to question God is a form of rebellion, and to rebel is, quote, as the sin of witchcraft. In other words, it's satanic. So you remove all checks, all accountability, all questioning, and now you have a regime that can order its followers to dutifully obey and if they don't, they are defying Almighty God and therefore are in league with the devil. Hmm. That's an advantage that no other political, social, even military convention can give. And we see all kinds of examples of it, and it is certainly present here. It was present on January 6th during the insurrection. It's been present in state houses. It is certainly present in the current permutation of Republican politics on every level. And I would argue without apology that Donald Trump embodied hmm. and will again if mm -hmm. reelected to the presidency. So these are not 
small marginal things. It is the center of the crisis we're living in. And it boils down to the sub subject you introduced at the very beginning of this yes. conversation. It all amounts to the worst form of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to counter this rise that we see as a threat? I'm very conscious that I did a lot of damage hmm. for a lot of years. And, and that, you know, that's, I don't say that for sympathy or, or to be maudlin. I'm just conscious of it. I'm very aware of it. And I know I have to do a lot of work to even try to remediate some of that damage that was done. And, and I'm trying to do that. But what I'm doing, one of the first things I'm doing is, is speaking, is saying things. I, I think some people think, you know, what can I ever do? Well, the first thing you can do is speak your conscience. Just speak it. Sometimes in very small, limited ways, doesn't mean you have to mount a podium somewhere or publish a tome or do an interview on some national platform. You don't even have to do a podcast with Amanda Henderson, mm -hmm. but it helps. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can speak during a, a dinner at your family table. Just venture your conscience in a moment in time, check and challenge somebody lovingly and respectfully, and even maybe with some apology or humility. Sometimes you win bigger that way than when you assert how right you are in the moment. Mm -hmm. You might say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I may be the only one at this table, but it bothers me, and I'll tell you why, and I don't know. I go to sleep with these kinds of things, and it really troubles me. That's just me. And then let others wrestle with that. Even if it annoys them and angers them, let them own that and experience it. Don't take it from them. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. Just let them be upset. We're all big grown-ups. Mm -hmm. Just even speaking your conscience. I try to do that on the platforms that I have, whether I'm blogging or I'm speaking from a podium or a stage or I'm sitting with sometimes old colleagues from my old world. And it's amazing how many people are out there troubled in a similar way. And all mm. they've been waiting for is somebody to say it. And they will find you. Somehow they'll find you. Even after the family leaves the table, somebody comes up and pulls on you and says, I was really glad you said that. Because, you know, I've been thinking some of the same things, and it's been bothering me, too. And maybe they're whispering. But then the two of you get talking, and now you can strengthen one another, and you start speaking a little louder with a little more volume, because there's two of you now, not one. And then maybe there'll be a third, and on and on it goes. So that's the small yeah. way of doing it. The other is, of that's course, great. we've got to exercise our privileges and use them as best we can. And one of those is voting. Mm-hmm. And this is not a time to sit anything out. Hmm. Wonderful. Rob, 
Thank you so much. So for those who want to hear more about Rob's story, I can't recommend enough uh, the film by Abigail Disney, Armor of Light, and Rob's book, Costly Grace, that I will have links to on the show notes for both of those. Rob, it has been a privilege to work with you and to have conversations and to continue to be challenged, to challenge some of my own assumptions. Your story is the epitome of complexified every element from your upbringing to your multiple incredible moments of transformation personally and the ways that you navigate that with nuance and grace. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, That was Rob Shank, founder of the Bonhoeffer Institute. Next time on Complexified, you do not want to miss my conversation with the joyful, passionate Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis of Middle Church in New York and author of the book Fierce Love. This is time for bold declarations of what love looks like, and if it's about violence, it's probably not. Until next time, we are all connected. Let's live that way. Thanks so much for joining us. For resources and ideas you can take home to your community, visit our website in the show notes. And if anything in this conversation inspired you, please share it with a friend. That is the very best way to support us. Complexified is presented by the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology. Lex Dunbar is an invaluable member of the team. Also working hard behind the scenes are engineer Andrew Perella, producer Elaine Appleton-Grant, Tina Basir, and the rest of the crew at Podcast Allies. I'm Amanda Henderson.